Hey, good morning and happy Easter. And man, of all the things I ever thought I'd be doing for an Easter Sunday, this isn't one of them, but very, very grateful for Lenny and Justin in particular and all the hard work they put into this, Tommy as well. And this is fun. And thanks for trusting us. Thanks for making us a part of your Easter experience. You know, I've been thinking about this for a bit and it, it seems like this is one of those, it's, it's one of those moments that we'll probably reference for the rest of our lives. Uh, there's been others. Uh, I wonder how many of you can remember where you were when you heard that JFK had been assassinated. Uh, I wasn't alive. Or even wonder if there were any of you watching who can remember V-Day when you got word that World War II had, had ended. I imagine that was quite the day. There's things like the Space Shuttle Challenger and when it exploded, I do remember that. I remember sitting on my living room floor as a kid and just watching that footage and it was all very surreal. September 11th is one of those moments where I remember I was walking to college and some woman came running out of her house frantic saying they just bombed the trade towers. And I think, I think we're in one of those moments uh, where everything's referenced through this. I think my kids are going to remember the moment we got the stay in order because I ran home and I did ask permission to share this story, but I ran home. We heard that we were getting it kind of the work had wrapped up for the day. I wasn't feeling very productive. And so we jumped in the car. Teresa was working. We went to Costco. I don't think we really needed anything. I just, you kind of knew what was going to happen after that. And so I thought, ah, we'll just go there. And I think we ended up buying dog food and a couple other thing, a couple other things. But we stumbled around Costco for 45 minutes or so. And, you know, they don't even, they don't hand you the receipt anymore. They've got these rubber gloves. There's all these new measures that I just, I hadn't been there yet. And it was all kind of surreal to me. And we're standing in line and Lincoln said, I wonder if they're still selling hot dogs. I was like, there's no way they're selling hot dogs. So they disappeared and it was one of those, I didn't even think about it again until we're sitting in the car, pulling out of the Costco parking lot and both him and Chase had completely peeled the wrapper off their hot dog and we're double fisting this Costco hot dog. It wasn't one of my better moments as a parent as I was just kind of like, what are you guys thinking? Do you think this is a joke? But I do think that part of the the pain of this is not just the disorientation, but that almost like universal disorientation that we've suffered before, some of us more than others, but we've, we've gone through disorienting moments. We've, we've been through a divorce. Someone we love has died. Uh, we, there's, there's been illness, even a struggle for life or even an injury that took certain aspects of life that we liked away from us. And then it's not always the, the, the negative things either. I mean, we've graduated high school or college. We've moved to new towns. We've got new jobs. But I wonder if what's different about this from those things, and even in some ways, things like September 11th and those other things I mentioned is that most of the things I know for myself that I experienced before this, there was disorientation, but it was limited to a certain area. And while there was suffering in this area, I mean, at the very least, you could still go to a funeral and see all these people that you loved and you could give them a hug or, you know, you move to a new town, but there's still some normalcy. You can still go out to a restaurant this one just, it's completely pervasive. And I've been thinking a lot about that. And the, the remarkable thing to me is it's, it's unprecedented to us, but it's, it's actually not unprecedented. And one of the stories that's just been fascinating to me now for months involves the story of exile that we find in the Bible. And I actually think that that story can give us some handles for, for this story, which is why we're really launching this series this weekend called Life in Exile. See, in 587 BC, when Nebuchadnezzar finally conquered 
Jerusalem. It was after a lengthy siege. He surrounded the city, cut off all food and water supply. You can imagine the the heinous things that happened inside the city walls over that extended siege. But in 587, the walls finally collapsed. His army finally breached them. And when when the army of Nebuchadnezzar moved into Jerusalem, uh, it was was savage. They, They killed everybody they could get their hands on. There were some people who reportedly survived by fleeing the city. They especially targeted the wealthy elite. Remember, this is an era where there aren't middle-class people. You have wealthy, powerful people and a bunch of peasant people. And after, after completely destroying the temple and reclaiming many of the, the gold artifacts for other purposes, uh, they got their hands on the king and they actually gouged his eyes out, kept him alive. Uh, there were several others that they kept alive. And those people were hauled back to Babylon. They, they became a part of exile. And, and I think you just have to kind of stop and imagine what that must have been like. It's, it's akin to some other country landing on the east coast of the U.S. and destroying the White House and the Capitol building and taking the president and many congressmen and many other people like, like you know, Bill Gates and hauling them back to this other city where there's a new language and a new religion. And one of the things that, that was somewhat unique to Babylon was they absolutely wanted to assimilate all other cultures into theirs. Uh, There was nothing multicultural about their value system. They wanted to destroy Jewish culture, Jewish religion, Hebrew language, all of it. And so these people were were left trying to figure out life in in a land that they'd never seen, uh, with a language they'd never heard, uh, a religion they'd never experienced. And in the text, we, we actually, we have a lot of evidence of the emotional trauma of, of those experiences in Psalm 137, uh, just, just even verse one, there's this Psalm by the rivers of Babylon. There we sat down and there we wept when we remembered Zion. Zion's another word for Jerusalem. These people, I, I think in some ways experiencing things real similar to what we are, just a complete disorientation, uh, very little hope of reorientation. In Psalm 74, it's another one of these psalms that we would associate with the, the, the emotional and spiritual processing of exile. It says, O God, why do you cast us off forever? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? Remember your congregation, which you acquired long ago, which you redeemed to be the tribe of your heritage. Remember Mount Zion, where you came to dwell. Direct your steps to the perpetual ruins. The enemy has destroyed everything in the sanctuary. Now, I, I, I have not yet heard somebody blame God for this, and I'm not suggesting that God is to be blamed, though I'm guessing there are people doing that. But again, it's the, it's the, it's the pain of that moment. And part of what makes exile to me so fascinating, and I'm really grateful for a professor last semester uh, who, who kind of opened this up to me, but... Whatever the stories in the Bible meant before exile, we don't necessarily know because because the exile, it it formed and shaped every story we have in the Bible. Uh, You you could think of it like fingerprints. The fingerprints of exile are all over the Old Testament. Uh, Dr. Delamater says it this way. He says, very few people retain a story just for the sake of retaining it. Most of the stories that we retain, we, we retain them not just because we're such committed historians, but because they, they help us make sense of this, the current situation. 
And so one way to think about the Bible is it frankly didn't exist before exile. This was a religion that was centered around temple and sacrifice and festival and a king. There was no need to to capture these stories, especially in written form. What was there was there in an oral tradition. But in exile, these people, uh, they were left figuring out what does life look like next? Reorientation required them to figure God out without temple, without Jerusalem, without a king, without any of it. Uh, You can think of the Adam and Eve story. This to me is a great example of this. What the Adam and Eve story meant before exile is something that we can speculate on. But what we know is that the Adam and Eve story was captured and written down in light of exile. Think of it this way. Two people given remarkable opportunity and privilege. Two people, image bearers, breath bearers of God, made from dirt, but made to be gardeners, made to tend what was around them, made to take look after what was around them, made to represent God. Those people, they decide that's not enough. Uh, they decide they want to be God, not be human. We talked about this just last week. God shows up and I suppose we are all left to interpret how much anger and wrath is there versus just how much natural consequence. But ultimately, God does what with Adam and Eve? He takes them to the edge of the garden. He lets them outside the garden. Adam and Eve, it's a story about exile. It's a story about a people trying to reconcile. We blew it. We had it. We lost it. What that story meant pre-exile is, again, who knows? Why was it retained? Because it helped them make sense of exile. Or think of the Exodus story. Why is the Exodus the single central narrative, not just of the Old Testament, but even for Jesus of his own life? Again, think of the story. People enslaved to a foreign king, a force that they had no control or power over, a people who lose their identity, their humanity, their sense of spirituality and religion, who cry out to God, to come rescue them. And eventually God hears their cries and sends a guy named Moses, who does what? Who leads them out of exile, who leads them out of that. See, a people who are experiencing the throes of disorientation, they look for stories of hope that that say God is faithful in the reorientation. So I think one of the things we have to struggle with is this, exile is brutal. It's horrific. It's unprecedented to you and I, but it's not unprecedented. But it's also opportunity. In 1665, uh, Sir Isaac Newton wasn't Sir Isaac Newton. He was just a 20-year-old college student at Cambridge. And in 1665, the Great Plague of London hit. Remember, this is 200 years before they discovered bacteria. This is a plague that ultimately killed 25% of London's population. They practice their own form of social distancing. It's, again, new to us, not new to humanity. People were sent home, and it turns out they were home for over a year. Isaac Newton went home, and he had no screen or nothing to distract himself with. Well, he must have had something to distract himself with, but he didn't do that. He went to work. He started working on some math formulas, the result of which was what we now know as early calculus. Uh, He noticed the light coming through the shutter of one of his windows. He drilled a little tiny hole. He got a hold of some prisms. He developed early optics. He invented eyeglasses and the way we think about that. At one point, he was looking out into his backyard. It's a bit of an urban legend around the apple and, and the tree, but at one point he did watch an apple fall from the tree and hit the ground. And, and he wondered, who's to say that 
gravity is limited to the top of that tree? What if it, say, extends all the way to the moon? And what came from that were his gravitational theories that are, are still utilized today. When, when social distancing was over and Isaac Newton went back to Cambridge, within two months he was made a fellow, within two years he was made a professor, and later in life when he became Sir Isaac Newton, he referred to that year, that year in exile, that year in disorientation, he referred to that year as his year of wonders. So what if exile is brutal? But what if exile is also opportunity? And what if we're now moving into the season where we can start paying attention to what is the opportunity of that? Let's think again of Israel and going back to Israel. I've already spoke to this idea that pre-exile, there was no Bible. So, so we can literally say that it was, it was because of the reorientation that happened in exile that these Jewish people went, wait a minute, we, we should probably write these stories down. We should capture them. And related to that was without a temple, they had to rethink, how do we even experience God? And, and many would say that, that synagogue was invented. This, this idea that we don't have to get together and sacrifice animals, but we can get together and we can tell story and we can challenge one another and we can share and we can experience relationship. Synagogue comes out of exile. Some rabbis say that, that the, the altar, the altar where animals were sacrificed was replaced with the family dinner table. Again, that, that's, that's an exile idea. And, and maybe most important of all, this one I think is incredibly relevant as we think about our political times. You know, years, years later, Persia conquered Babylon. And of course, Cyrus became king of Persia. And one of his values was he, he started to free up these different people, all these people. Israel wasn't the only one brought into the empire. And he started giving them permission to go back to their native lands and their native places. And he actually was giving them permission to reestablish their culture and even their religion. But there was one caveat. And that was they had to keep him king. So you could go back, you could have your religion, you could have your culture, but he had to stay your king. Persia had to stay your government. And we now know historically that of all the cultures that tried to do this, most of them couldn't pull it, up, pull it off. Uh, nearly all of them assimilated into what became Greek and Roman culture because they couldn't figure out an identity without a king. Israel did it. And they did it because of exile. Because in exile, they didn't have David or Solomon or anybody in that line on the throne. They had to rethink it all. And in exile, they discovered a very, very valuable, important theological idea. That idea was that God was their king. They transitioned from this thing that said, we have to have David as our king to this realization of like, wait a minute, there's no, there's no human king over us. God is our king. We see this in, in Psalm 145. It's just one instance of this brand new reorientation spiritually that happened for Israel in exile. It starts out this way, I will extol you my God and King. See, we take that for granted, but this was total reorientation. And bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. What if exile is brutal? But what if exile is also opportunity? In fact, what if we can say it this way? What, what if it's not important that we like exile? But it is important that we steward exile, that we pay attention to the opportunities of these moments and the reorientation they can bring. So Easter, Palm Sunday, 
Jesus is walking into the city. And as, as people are getting more and more excited about him, they're more and more excited about what? This is the irony of the story in my mind. They're excited because they think they're getting their king back. Palm Sunday is about a coronation of a military dictator, so to speak. The palm branches, the coats, the Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's all about, ironically, Israel has stepped back into this growing need for a king. And Jesus is, is a type of a king but he quickly continues to disappoint them. He doesn't ride in on a stallion, which is what you would expect from a Caesar or someone trying to take his job. He doesn't come in on a Bradley tank, so to speak. It's like he comes in on the first century version of a unicycle. He comes in on a donkey. It's, it's almost kind of a clown act. It's this, like, he's way, way downplaying, not himself, but the type of Messiah he would be. And of course, eventually his refusal to put on a crown and be that kind of king leads to his being arrested by his own people and led to Pilate and ultimately tried. And the irony is in the midst of the trial, when Pilate's doing everything he can to kind of release Jesus to them, what do the Jewish people cry? We have no king but Caesar. Pilate eventually does crucify him and he puts a sign above his head. Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Now imagine you're his disciples. You've spent the last three years of your life, you've completely reoriented your life around Jesus being the Messiah. And then he dies. Talk about disorientation, talk about exile. They lay him in the tomb. And remember, there, there's nobody standing outside the tomb counting down 10, 9, 8, 7. Nobody was looking for resurrection. The reason, in my view, that that Jesus' resurrection is one of the most historical events in ancient history is because everybody expected dead people to stay dead. These people weren't stupid. They had the same ideas about death that we do. Jesus walked out of the tomb alive on Sunday, the epitome of reorientation, and once again invites us to experience God as king, as, as leader, but a different kind of king. See, Easter is it's about exile. It's about disorientation, but it's also about reorientation. It's about a God of hope. It's about a God who's not going to be controlled and who is bigger than our theological systems. It's about a God who says, I can, I can make use of any mess. Communion, this thing that, that we do. Uh, in fact, if you've got your elements, grab them. I'm going to grab mine. So... On the night he was betrayed, Jesus, he took, he took bread. This is real Jerry Stordahl narrate communion bread. And he took wine. There's some in here. It's hard to get it to the top of a mountain. And he said, what? This is my body broken. This is my blood poured out. What, what is communion if not a God who's asking us to trust him in the midst of disorientation? It made no sense. Jesus completely redefined Passover. Let's take communion. You don't even have to worry about cuticles because it's just only you that's going to do that at your house. So, there's disorientation, there's reorientation. What if all of this is a little bit of like exile? 
And what if the invitation of this, the invitation of Easter, is to step toward it, to steward it, to trust that, that this God is king, that he came to bring about a completely different kind of one, one that's ushered in, but not by, by swords and guns, but one that's ushered in by us living within our domain the way he would if he was us. So in the coming weeks, we're, we're going we're gonna to try to do the, the work of exile in this series. I, I think there's remarkable opportunity and I, I think there's a variety to it. The other thing that we want to invite you to do, and that gets to the, the, the Eastern Exile Roadshow that Hannah alluded to earlier, already loaded on, on your podcast app or wherever it is that you listen when you do, that there's, there's an audio file there. And, and the design of this is to give you and your family or you and your roommate or you and the friend that you're going to put your earbud in across the country. And I'd love for you to drive somewhere or, or hike to the top of something. Or if you're confined to your house, I, I think you can do it there too. But it involves going on a journey that I think hopefully helps you kind of prayerfully and yet conversationally and relationally begin to do the work of exile. Begin to, to put words to what does this cost you? And what do you need to grieve? And then to begin to begin to name some of the, okay, but, but what past experiences can you anchor to? What Exodus experiences can you anchor to that gives you the assurance that God is faithful in this one too? And then to begin to do even harder work of, you know, what, what's your theory of gravity? What's, what's your early calculus? What's, what's the reorientation work that God has for you in this season? So let me pray about your Easter and thanks again for gathering with us. God, um, this is weird in lots and lots of ways and yet hopefully reassuring that it's not unprecedented. I think it is for some of us more than others, but even the youngest of us, God, I think if, uh, if, if we take the time, we can see you faithfully leading us out of other exiles at the risk of trivializing the big ones. And so God, I pray that today is, is a, meaningful, uh, a meaningful day, a meaningful experience, a meaningful conversation with those that we love and with you as we step into, this is a little bit like exile and we don't have to like it, but maybe we do need to focus on using it. Amen. If you would like to learn more about Narrate Church, find us at narratechurch.org or look us up on Facebook and Instagram.